0: Take your copy of God's Word and turn to Isaiah twenty three, again reminding you that uh, though there are many men who wrote the individual books of the Bible, the primary author, the singular author, was God Himself. And as a result, uh, we are comfortable in saying that when the Lord wrote this, he had an original reading audience in mind. Everybody that's read it since and you in mind even today, and everybody that will read it afterwards. Infinitely wise God, who is speaking to you today in another complicated passage, Isaiah 23. The oracle concerning Tyre. Wail, O ships of Tarshish, for Tyre is laid waste without house or harbor. From the land of Cyprus it is revealed to them. <clears throat> Be still, O inhabitants of the coast. The merchants of Sidon across the sea have filled you. And on many waters, your revenue was the grain of Shihor, the harvest of the Nile. You were the merchant of nations. Be ashamed, O Sidon, for the sea has spoken, the stronghold of the sea, saying, I have neither labored nor given birth. I have neither reared young men nor brought up young women. When the report comes to Egypt, they will be in anguish over the report about Tyre. Cross over to Tarshish. Whale over inhabitants of the coast. Is this your exultant city, whose origin is from days of old, whose feet carried her to settle far away? Who has purposed this against Tyre, the bestower of crowns, whose merchants were princes, whose traitors were the honored of the earth? When well, The Lord of hosts has purposed it, to defile the pompous pride of all glory, to dishonor all the honored of the earth. Cross over your land like the Nile, O daughter of Tarshish, there is no restraint any more. He has stretched out his hand over the sea. He's shaken the kingdoms. The Lord has given command concerning Canaan to destroy its strongholds. And he said, You will no more exult, O oppressed virgin daughter of Sidon. Arise, cross over to Cyprus. Even there you will have no rest. Behold the land of the Chaldeans. This is the people that was not. Assyria destined it for wild beasts. They erected their siege towers. They stripped their palaces bare. They made her a ruin. Wail, O ships of Tarshish, for your stronghold is laid waste. And that day Tyre will be forgotten for 70 years, like the days of one king. The end of 70 years it will happen to Tyre as in the song of the prostitute. Take a harp. Go about the city, O forgotten prostitute. Make sweet melodies, sing many songs that you may be remembered. At the end of 70 years, the Lord will visit Tyre and she will return to her wages and will prostitute herself with all the kingdoms of the world on the face of the earth. Her merchandise and her wages will be holy to the Lord and will not be stored or hoarded, but her merchandise will supply abundant food and fine clothing for those who dwell before the Lord." Yes, another one of these passages that challenge us, stretch our mind and our Bible knowledge. Let's pray. Oh, God, would you speak through the preaching, even as you have spoken through the reading. Give us understanding, we ask for Christ's sake. Amen. Hopefully, you can kind of go back and remember an example of this. I'll give a couple examples, maybe that'll prompt your memory, but that moment in life where you kind of realize the difference between understanding a thing in the abstract and understanding the thing in the concrete, right? Understanding it kind of out in the ether, out in a way that's kind of eh, in concept, but then different for when you actually get your hands on it. One of the most obvious ways that this happens uh, certainly happened, I think, probably to everybody at some point in their schooling career where you were studying and you're like, ooh, I understand the material. I got it. I totally understand this. I totally understand this. I totally understand this. And the teacher hands you the test and you're like, I don't understand this. Pre-calc made all the sense in the world until it was right there in front of you. Or maybe it was when you first started learning to cook and you were uh, trying to start uh, putting together making and cooking some of mom's recipes. And you're like, I watched mom make this a hundred times. I know exactly how it's done. And then you go start making, and you're like, what is going on? I have no idea what's happening. My favorite, often, is one of those where it's really dealing with anything related to children. We were like, I know exactly how to do this. And then they hand you the baby in the hospital, and you're like, I don't know what I'm doing. What is this thing? I'm going to kill it by accident. <laughs> I remember years ago, this is one of my favorites, years ago, visiting a family as they had just had a newborn. I was in the hospital visiting with them, and they had worked nursery in our church for I don't know how many years. And I visited them the second day, so the baby is brand new, and, uh, you know, hold the baby or whatever, and they're like, well, I, I, I think he's cold, but I don't know how to wrap him. You've worked at our nursery how long and you don't know how to wrap up a kid? All right, let me help. I'll teach you how to wrap a kid. Not what I thought would be in my job description today, but I'll teach you how to swaddle a child. We can do this. It's within my skill set. They had no idea. It was fantastic. They'd done it hundreds of times. The difference between understanding something in the concept, in the ether, and understanding something kind of in the tangible, in the application, in the implementation, is really the difference... Of what we might call practical theology when it comes to the Bible. It's the difference between what Paul would say increasing knowledge versus increasing love. It's the difference between simply knowing Bible verses intellectually in our brain and being able to put them into practice. Being able to let those truths shape our daily lives, let them shape how we drive, let them shape how we parent, let them shape how we eat and drink and whatever else we do unto the Lord. And I suspect that in many cases, we have those doctrines that we're like, well, I get it, I believe that, I know that's true, I know that's real, I know that's right, but then when it comes time to actually implement it and to put it into practice, we're like, ah, what is this thing? I don't know what I'm doing. One of those is, I suspect, amongst the many, the myriad, the multitude of lists, is very common in reform circles as we talk about God's sovereignty. Really, when we talk about God's sovereignty, what we're talking about is his grandeur, how big he is. Is he so big that he's in control, or am I so big that I'm in control? Now, realistically, intellectually, I I understand the Bible teaches me that God is so big that He's in control of all things in all ways. But my flesh really doesn't like that fact, right? I want to be in charge. I want to be able to kind of rule my own life and run my own life. And perhaps maybe you take a spell where you begin to think that and believe that and you realize that's perhaps the least comforting thing in all of creation, To think that you're actually in charge of your own life is genuinely, astonishingly terrifying. And so we come back to this doctrine that we kind of have to wrestle through with, is God in charge of his creation? Is God in charge? Does he actually rule and actually reign? And that's a question we're gonna look at. In fact, actually, we're gonna look at it kind of not in the ether, not in the abstract, not in the concept form, But here in chapter 23 of Isaiah, we're going to try to at least take it into the practicalities, into the very uh, kind of small examples of the very things that he shows he has control over. Now, the problem, not problem, I mean the challenge, I guess, in chapter 23 is this is dealing with a wicked nation. This is a nation that is now in Lebanon. It's to the north of Israel. It's up against uh, the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, They were known for their, um, obviously for their ships, for their uh, merchants, for their ability to transport goods all over the known world at the time, but they were a wicked nation. And so what we have is God interacting with a wicked nation and showing his might and his power and his greatness and his grandeur over a wicked nation, which immediately becomes a little bit challenging for us to figure out how to apply because last I checked, none of you are a wicked nation. You're individuals, and in fact, actually, you're individuals that as best we know are dear saints, beloved of the Lord, children of the Most High. And so we have here in chapter 23, the Lord speaking of the destruction of a nation, a nation that is opposed to Him, a nation that has opposed to His people. And so what we're hopefully going to find through this is actually hope in God's promises, even as we look at the various things that God exercises His power over It starts with the bad news, as is common in these oracles. We're in the middle of the second cycle of them in Isaiah. It's really hard preaching, because it's just bad news after bad news after bad news after bad news. And this chapter continues. Wail, O ships of Tarshish. Why? Because your trade buddy has been destroyed the ones that you would make all of your money from, the ones that you would uh, get all of your you know, financing from, they, they've all been destroyed. This would be the uh, equivalent of weep and wail upper middle class. Amazon has been destroyed, right? All of your money that would be spent, all of your purchasing, all of your goods and uh, expenditure, it's all gone. It's, it's been removed. You have nothing anymore to transact, in fact, even from the land of Cyprus, this is becoming known in the entirety of the Mediterranean. It's becoming known through the entirety of the known world, even verse 3, all the way down to Egypt. The whole known world is going to find out what happens to Tyre and Sidon, that the Lord has destroyed them, and that in verse 3, they were the merchant of nations, and then gone for a spell. The interesting thing, though, as we kind of begin here, is what the Lord begins with uh, not just destroying Tyre and Sidon, that's the low-hanging fruit that we all could easily think through and understand and and believe, but how much interestingly He is concerned with Tyre and Sidon's reputation. That's going to be the first thing that we get to see God being sovereign over is the reputation of people and nations. This is intriguing to me. It's the thing that we probably think about too much, but perhaps in the wrong ways, is that look at these first really six verses. Tyre is being destroyed, but what is the Lord's concern at this point in the passage? He's concerned that Tarshish is going to find out, that Cyprus is going to find out. That's, uh, verses, um, well, that's verse 1 right there. Verse 3, you have it making all the way down to Egypt. Verse 5, it even becomes more clear when the report comes to Egypt, they will be in anguish over the report about Tyre. the, the, the the, renowned, the the reputation that the name of this nation is going to become a source of grief and destruction in the entirety of the known world, even all the way to Tarshish. Not close. <laughs> Not close at all. The entirety of the known world will hear of Tyre and Sidon, and it will become a source of, of shame, a source of sorrow, a source of grief, a source of loss. And I think it's interesting that here, when it begins in this conversation of destroying this nation, part of what the Lord is engaging is even what's known about them, the the information that's distributed about them, the reputation that they have in the world around them. This is, I think, perhaps one of those areas where many Reformed Christians— many in our camp and our denomination have done virtually zero thinking about the sovereignty of God. Most of us, I suspect, have done virtually zero thinking about the fact that anyone and everyone's reputation, their name, their honor, their glory is subordinate to the sovereignty of God. And in fact, actually, we could go one step further to say that God even cares about that. That he cares about that. Now, some of us are in a station of life right now where our life is, by and large, easy, or by and large, good, or by and large, great. And we would think, well, Michael, that is a really weird point. Why would you even make that? Who cares? I mean, my name is my own name. I've worked to earn what I've gotten, and it's fine. However, friends, not everybody in the room is in that situation. Some of us might be in situations where we're laboring with coworkers that are seemingly out to get us. Perhaps they've lied to us, to our, our colleagues. Perhaps they've lied to us, uh, to our bosses. Perhaps, as even even one step further, their incompetence might look like it's our incompetence, and we might not like that. We We might be worried that people might think that we're the incompetent ones, that we're the stupid ones. Or, maybe further yet, we might be worried or concerned that people might think ill of us. They might think that we're the bad guys. They might think that we're some sort of uneducated, uncouth moron. Some of us might be in situations with friends or family where they're the weirdo, you know, you're the weirdo in the neighborhood because you don't participate in all of the strange things that happen in the neighborhood. You know, some of you might actually be bearing already just some of the quiet judgmentalism that can happen in the South for committed Christians. It's so easy for us to kind of understand that God is sovereign over everything, that God is sovereign over all of the the actions of His creatures, and then suddenly blank when it comes time for us to think about that. No, even my reputation is part of that. Like, even how I'm known is part of that. And in fact, even how the evil are known is part of that. I mean, we could go throughout the Psalter, look at all of the Psalms, and you see how many of them. You have the psalmist crying out, saying, God, how is it that it looks like the wicked prosper for a time? And I, the righteous, suffer. It's not fair. It's unjust. And in all but one of the Psalms, it gets around to the end to say, but the Lord's ways are good and right and true, and he's sovereign, and in the end, it will all be made right. Those that are evil and, and profoundly evil, profaning the name of God, but still kind of multiplying their honor, their reputation, their name, and their glory, it, it will come to an end. Likewise, and I, I love how uh, this is one of the things that even the Westminster Divines did with our confession of faith, uh, in the question of what benefits do believers receive at the resurrection one of the things that the very big, they're vindicated. They're vindicated every time that someone has thought ill of you that has, in fact, actually treated you. You're vindicated. You're proven that you are the child of God and that you are on the winning team, not because we're the winners, but because Christ is. I think it's interesting that kind of it puts a different frame of mind for Christians when we get to interact with God's sovereignty in such a way. In fact, actually, I think probably more than anything if we begin to think in these categories that God is the one who is sovereign over even my name, God is the one who's sovereign over even my reputation, I suspect what it gives us is a freedom to one be obedient but two, to rest in Jesus, right? It gives us the freedom to be obedient because my concern is not what you think, or my concern is not what they think outside. My concern is only what the triune God thinks, and he's already told me what he thinks. He's given me his law. That's how, he's told me how I am to behave. He's told me that I am his child, and that he loves me, and therefore, go obey in the freedom and goodness and grace of the gospel, You're a forgiven child of God. You've been given a new nature. You have the Spirit residing within you. Go live according to that law. Don't worry about what anybody else has to say. Go obey God to the ends of the earth. If the world hates you for it, so be it. That's on them, not you. If your Christian neighbors judge you for it, so be it. That's on them. That's not on you. Go honor the Lord. But even beyond honoring the Lord is have peace in doing it. There's a freedom in that. There's a a joy in that. God's sovereign over it. He's the one who's in charge of it. He's the one in control. And he sees even that which cannot be seen. I think about just kind of so many of the conversations I have in my world. There's so much anxiety connected to what other people think about us. And it's like, friends, the Lord's already told you. You're his child. He sacrificed his son on the cross for you. Be at peace and go obey. Stop being so "Mm," about what everybody else thinks. Be at peace and go obey. You're forgiven. Go act like it. Here, it starts with this, interestingly, though in the negative here with Tyre and Sidon, uh, in essence saying their reputation will be kind of ruined amongst the entirety of the world, really verses 1 through 6. But not just their reputation is uh, really uh, <laughs> ruined, so to speak. Their name is, is handled in such a negative way. But their sources of pride are then addressed their boasting is addressed, the things that they would have uh, found great honor and glory and significance in are really upturned in verses 7 and 8. Is this your exultant city, whose origin is from days of old? Tyre and old cities, actually, we know this from uh, archaeology today, date back very, very, very old Um, come into their own a little bit later uh, in archaeology, but very old cities. Is this your exultant city, your boastful city, your rejoicing city, your overly jubilant city, whose feet have actually, you've had so much prosperity and so much success in your merchants uh, that you've been able to take your culture, your community, your city to the ends of the earth? You've been able to have this influence everywhere. In fact, actually, who is this that's against Tyre? Who is it that's arrayed themselves against this great nation? And notice the titles that even Isaiah is putting them. These are probably titles that would have been very appropriate that everybody would have understood. The bestower of crowns, a nation of merchant princes. In essence, they were so successful in their business ventures, it was like they had become royalty. They're traders that were honored to the ends of the earth. They were treated well and respectful because they were so good at what they do. They were, kind of for illustrative purposes, in many ways the opposite of lawyers in America. Right? Lawyers in America, many of them very good at what they do, but some of them are kind of so skeezy that nobody respects lawyers by and large. These were the opposite. They were so good at everything they did in their kind of, you know, merchant realm here, their shipping industry, that everybody respected them where they went. And yet, what happens in verse 9, the Lord is the one who has done this, the Lord of hosts, He is the one who has upturned them, and in fact, what is he doing? He's taking all of their pompous pride, all of their self-glory, all of the honor and delight they have found in their deeds, all of the greatness and grandeur, all of the identity that they have derived from their actions, and he's turning it on its head. It's the Lord who will defile the pompous pride of their glory. It's the Lord who will dishonor all of the honored of the Lord of the earth, it's the Lord who is doing this and turning it inside out and upside down. And it's interesting how this one kind of in so many ways dovetails with the first problem. The first one, we have these folks that are so concerned with reputation, they're so concerned with people. And now you have not addressing the people, but the actions, Those that take meaning and value and identity and glory and strength from their accomplishments. It's so easy for us to see the first one in so many ways, right? People pleasers, those that are insecure around other humans that are constantly laboring and spending their energies to make other people happy. They have kind of no value in who God has made them to be, and they're defined by their relationships with everybody else. This second one is a bit sometimes a bit more sneaky, we have people that have begun to be defined by their accomplishments, by their successes, by their gifts, by their actions, by their deeds. Whereas the first one, they find meaning in their friends and in their family and uh, their relational dynamics. The second one, you're talking about people who begin to find meaning and identity and strength by their greatness, what they've done. This is one that is oftentimes a major struggle for men. largely because we oftentimes don't know how to talk to each other. You you run into another guy at a backyard barbecue, you know, a school thing for the kids, and the first question is, what's your name? And what's the second question? Any man asks another man, what do you do? That's correct, what do you do? Because for so many of us, it's so easy to be defined by the job that we do 45 to 55 hours a week, every week, for the entirety of our lives. It's so easy for us to find identity and value and meaning in those hours, those accomplishments, those deeds, and it's so easy for us to begin to boast in them, to find value in them, to find meaning. And interestingly, the Lord is going right at it. Verse 9, going right at it. Yes, I'm sovereign over your relationships, I'm sovereign over your, your reputation, I'm sovereign over your people, I'm sovereign over all of those human connections, but I am also sovereign over all of the accomplishments that you have made in your life. I'm sovereign over all of those things. The gifts that you have used, I have given them to you. Uh, The resources that you have multiplied, I have given them to you. The successes that you have enjoyed, I have given them to you because I am sovereign over all of those things. And in fact, for Tyre and Sidon, he cuts at the very heart of what they're boasting in to kind of flip it So their ships that they've boasted in become part of the problem so that their economy that they've boasted in becomes part of the problem. They disappear from history for a season because the Lord is reversing their pride. In fact, 10 and 11, we see He's sovereign over their fortunes. So not just their relationships, not just their accomplishments, but even their very fortunes themselves. 10 and 11 Cross over your land like the Nile, O daughter of Tarshish, there's no restraint anymore. Uh, this translation is hard. I mean, this, this chapter really is difficult uh, for translators, but the idea here is like this kind of bursting the banks. And when the Nile would flood and the banks would burst and it would just you know, really partially destroy Egypt, but partially fertilize the entire nation, and so it made them kind of one of the most prosperous nations on the earth at the time, is that the Nile would flood every year, it would deposit all of the fresh, uh, nutrient-rich soil, and then it would go back into its banks, and you would use that leftover soil to then plant all of your crops, so they would grow, but it was catastrophe in the process, because if you had your stuff set too close to the Nile, all of your belongings washed away, and you with it, and you died. Uh, Here the same idea of God's judgment is coming and it's going to kind of burst the banks of the Nile and and kind of wash over the land and uh, destroy the land. Think here probably kind of again for American illustrations uh, for those that are old enough in the room to remember but like when the levees burst with Katrina you remember watching and you see like, oh no, oh no, the water kind of got higher, kind of got higher, kind of got higher. And then there was that little trickle as the kind of burst through the earthen dam and then the whole thing gave. And the next thing you knew, you had half a state that was underwater, just standing underwater. This idea again here, the Lord is the one who's in charge of that. He's the one in charge of the gigantic hurricanes that stop over Houston and stop over New Orleans. He's the one that's in charge of the tornadoes that mysteriously peer uh, and pass through towns and cities and communities and take lives and destroy livelihoods. He's the one who is sovereign over all of the ways of creation He's the one who's uh, in charge of whether or not the spark catches fire that time in your house or if it's the spark you never know about that actually doesn't and is done away with. He's the one who's sovereignly in charge of all of our fortunes. Verse 11 kind of highlights this. He stretched out his hand over the sea. Uh, To make your money on the ocean is a gamble at best. I mean, to think about how much of your livelihood is connected to the wind and the waves of the waters, to know when you're going to hit terrible weather and have no prediction of that, to know how much difficulty there is in that. I remember a number of years ago, we were uh, talking about gambling actually at our presbytery level in the middle of an ordination exam, and one of the gentlemen stood up in the back, and he said, you have to understand, I'm a farmer by trade. I'm probably the biggest gambler in the room because every year I take my money and I put it in the dirt and hope that it shows up next year. And in fact, what it teaches me is I have to trust the Lord because he's the only one that can make those seeds sprout. Right on, sir. You've understood this correctly, that God is the one who's in charge of our fortunes. Uh, Whether or not we make money or lose money, now again, we have our own level of responsibility in that. But to understand that God's in charge of this. He's sovereign over it. He's taking care of us. He's watching over us going quickly. 12 and 13, he's sovereign over our rest. He said, "You will no more exalt, O oppressed virgin daughter of Sidon, arise, cross over Cyprus, even there you have no rest. The uh, Tyre and Sidon are going to be so under the judgment of God, so under the wrath of God, there will be no place they can get away from it, and no place they will be able to catch their breath and rest." This is a thing I think, again, many reformed Christians, we've not thought through these categories sufficiently. We have not thought through the category, the idea that God is the one who is in charge of ultimately even giving us the ability to rest. Sometimes our lives are so hectic because we've made poor decisions. And we need to change our poor decision making, honestly. But some seasons of life, He just provides busyness on top of busyness, difficulty on top of difficulty. And He's in charge of that. And He's not making a mistake. And he knows what he's doing. And in fact, actually, one of those things might be to overload you so much that you hit the breaking point where you actually have to return to him. And that's that wonderfully, I can do all things through verse out of context, the idea that God doesn't give you more than you can handle. That is a terrible, terrible explanation of that passage. God will always give you more than you can handle. The whole point of it is to teach you to rely on him. Uh, Read the rest of the verse. (laughs) He gives you his care while he does that. He watches over his people, he guards, and he keeps. Why? Because he's sovereign even over our rest. You realize that's why for so many in the room here, we have, friends, you may not know this, we have a number of dear saints in our body here that hurt so badly they can't sleep at night. That's why, do we send them new, you know, new manuals for stretching positions on how to find a new way to maybe try every night? Do we do this? Is, are we reaching out to all of the doctors and, you know, going out to Duke, going out to the Mayo Clinic to find, you know, 19 different steps for how to get a good night's sleep? No, that's not what the church does. We tell our members to go do that, go talk to your doctor, but what do we do? We go to the Most High and we plead with Him. We know you're sovereign even over the sleep of these dear, precious ladies and gentlemen that hurt so badly. Would you please give them a position they can sleep in tonight? That's a prayer my children and I have prayed together more nights than I can count. Give them a place they can sleep comfortably. Because, God, you're sovereign even over our sleep, our rest. Next, our legacy, and this is the one that probably isn't really going to matter to the young people in the room yet, but listen anyways, there will be a day when it will be important to you. <clears throat> what happens? Well, the Lord's sovereign over uh, the Tyre and Sidon, the destruction is going to be so comprehensive that they have no place to rest, they're going to be uh, pursued on every side, they're going to be harassed on every side, they're going to be destroyed, really. The consequence of that will be what for many people would be as you near the end of your life, very concerning. Verse 15, the consequence is going to be that these are going to be nations that are going to be forgotten. They're going to be removed from the memory of a nation, from the memory of the world. They're going to be removed, really, taken off the map for a season, 70 years exactly, and forgotten. An idea that I think probably scares many of us, and some even as we near perhaps the later stages of life, of the idea of to think that my life didn't have any meaning. It didn't have any value. Nobody remembers me. nobody loves me, nobody cares for me. In fact, actually, now that you now that I put it that way that actually might be the single biggest struggle that the youngest generation is having, isn't it? Where we're watching a generation that is just hemorrhaging with this idea of nobody loves me. Nobody cares for me. Nobody, nobody is investing in me. Nobody wants to see me, to know me, to love me. I just, I just want to be known and loved. I watched part of an interview Yesterday, uh, a gentleman who had transitioned, he was born a male, had transitioned uh, into a female and was kind of lamenting uh, that, that idea, lamenting his life. And when they were asking him questions, kind of how he had gotten to that point, it was intriguing how he really said, Look, at the end of the day, it really ultimately wasn't about my body at all. It was about the fact that I just wanted somebody to love me. I just wanted somebody to. Take care of me. I wanted somebody to tell me that my life mattered. And as a result, I was willing to try increasingly weird things in order to matter so that somebody would remember me. And now I'm really sad. (laughs) And it's a dream that God's sovereignty extends even beyond that. Again, I think it's something the church should be talking about with great regularity. People matter because God says they matter. God cares about who you are and cares about your daily existence. He cares about your life. He cares about how he made you. He cares about every single part of you and watches over you. Likewise, when nations are forgotten, as in the case of Tyre and Sidon here, verses 15, 16, and the first part of 17, he's the one in charge of that. He's the one that takes them off the map. He's the one that brings them back because they even matter to him. They're not forgotten. Well, they're forgotten by the world, but not by God. And interestingly here, this one we have within the confines of very specific uh, time and space in history. Uh, This is either in the Mid 700s, this is happening, or in the early 600s, there's two different dates that commentators and historians debate as to which ones this is actually referring to. Uh, but 70 years basically, Tyre and Sidon disappear from the map, uh, and then they're brought back and they kind of rejuvenate. Uh, they rebrand, they regrow, and they become these great cities again, uh, the Phoenician Empire. And then what happens? You would think they would learn, you would think they would turn their hearts to the Lord, verse 17. Unfortunately, they do not. They continue, as verse 17 says, to prostitute themselves with all the kingdoms of the world on the face of the earth. They they are so in love with their money, so in love with their greed, so in love with their industry uh, that they do not seek the Lord at all. Until, and again, last kind of point of these illustrations of God's sovereignty, verse 18, which is really kind of one of the more shocking verses when you think about this. Every single verse so far dealing with Tyre and Sidon has been negative. The Lord will destroy them so much so that the nations will know. The Lord will destroy them through the destruction of their trade. The Lord will destroy them and make them poor so that their financial uh, um, abilities are reversed. The Lord's going to remove their rest and harass them on every side, even to the ends of the earth. The Lord's going to so destroy them that they're going to be wiped off the face of the planet for 70 years until you get to verse 18, in the most shocking sentence of all, and her merchandise and her wages, the, the merchandise and the wages of this pagan nation that hates God will be holy to the Lord. Why? Well, it's not going to be stored or hoarded, But her merchandise will supply abundant food and fine clothing for those that dwell before the Lord. Uh, Interestingly, this pagan nation that hates God, this pagan nation that's been under his destruction, is, at the wonderful end of this prophecy, going to become a tool for the kingdom of God. In fact, actually, we find out their merchants are going to be part of the merchants uh, that are used to... uh, get the temple set up correctly, and will be part of those that end up funding and uh, setting up Israel through the earliest growth of the restoration after the destruction. These are going to be part of the people that God is going to use to rebuild Israel and to rebuild His church. And as a result, these are the people that are going to be holy to the Lord, not because they obey Him, Not because they love him, not because they honor him, but because they're going to be used as a part of the kingdom of God. They're going to be a tool that is going to be used to do God's bidding. All right, very quickly, what do we do with this? Well, I would say just briefly, we know God loves us in the abstract. We know God is in control of all things in the abstract. But I suspect there are not two truths that we forget so quickly when they hit the concrete. When the rubber hits the road. That the Lord loves me and he's in charge of every aspect of my life. Now, that doesn't mean I don't make my life harder by being sinful or stupid. And those are my fault. That's not his. But the Lord is sovereign over every single part of my life. And as a result, any difficulty in my life becomes an opportunity for relationship with him. And in fact, actually, we could go one step further, and I love how this is what verse 18 is so key on. Any difficulty in my life is actually, because God is so powerful, can be a tool for his kingdom. It can be used for his Glory and for our good. And in fact, actually, if you were going to sit down, and maybe you should do this at Flocks uh, at home next week, sit and talk, younger folks, sit and talk with the older folks in the room. And I suspect those that have been the saints the longest in the room, if you ask them the periods in their life that they've grown the most and that they have found the sweetest relationship with the Lord, no one is going to say the times where they were the happiest everybody is going to say, it's the times that hurt the most. The times that were the most difficult, the times that were the most painful, the parts where we go, I don't want to relive it, but man, it changed my life. And why? Because our God loves us, and he takes care of us, he watches over us, and he's even sovereign over all things. And how do we know that? because he's already sent his son, to make sure that status is cemented forever, that we are his children. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this spiritual food. As we engage your word, we ask now that you would prepare us for more physical food as we feast upon Christ, even at the supper, even now. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen.